0: Welcome in everybody, Dr. Tim Brown. You're listening to Farmcast for the community. We are back for 2023. I wanna tell you guys that this month, I'm gonna be talking with Dr. Harvey about obesity and how to manage it, which is a hot, hot topic. But also in March, I have Dr. Joey Baker coming on to talk about HPV, which is the virus that can cause cervical cancer, anal cancer, and other types of cancer, and the vaccines that are out there to prevent it. So Dr. Baker is gonna walk us through that in the month of March. Talk about how we can prevent cancers by stopping this nasty virus. And she's going to walk us through what's available and also who should be getting it. But before we get to March, we have February. As I mentioned, I have Dr. Keisha Harvey on board. I have to tell you guys, I had the privilege back at the end of last year of listening to Dr. Harvey speak at a big conference on obesity management. And after I heard her speak, I said to myself, self, I really need to reach out to this person and get her to come on this podcast because her approach to her patients. And how she works with them to help them with their management of their weight is lovely and wonderful. And it's not about anything other than just helping patients out. And so I wanted her on board today. Now, she's a family medicine physician. She's certified in lifestyle and obesity medicine. She's in private practice in, is it Boca Lusa? That's it, Boca great?
1: Lusa, yes. Yeah.
0: Love that. Boca Lusa, Louisiana. Uh, Also, She also takes care of all the other conditions associated with family medicine and all the family members that you may think of from babies all the way to your grandparents and great grandparents. But her favorite condition and favorite thing to talk about with her patients is helping them with their weight. Welcome in Dr. Harvey, thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to um, share this topic with you and I was just thinking, we're talking about obesity in the month of love. So happy future Valentine's Day or past Valentine's Day to everyone.
0: Lovely, I agree. And you know, that's maybe that's where we start. We need to love ourselves a bit because this journey for obesity, I you know, I have to admit, I have gone through ups and downs of weight. I have worked out, I've been an athlete, I've done this, done that. But no matter what you do, there are just times I think I need to lose weight to feel either good about myself or because I'm getting ready to go to my my annual appointment with my family medicine doc who's going to tell me that I'm overweight or my BMI is too much. How do I know? If I qualify for the word obesity, just versus being overweight, like, is, are there criteria for that?
1: There are um, criteria, but I also want to touch on something you said. You said, you know, I want to lose some weight to feel good about myself. And I think just initially just feeling good about yourself is something that can actually help you lose weight because when we feel good about ourselves, we want to treat ourselves better. And as someone who struggles with having obesity and having overweight, you know, one day I was um, laying in bed and I was like, God, I'm, I'm supposed to be educating people how to be healthier and leaner. And here I am struggling. And then I had, to me, what was a download. And it was like, okay, this is the body that helped me birth two children. And this is the body that gets me up every day and makes sure I can work and feed my family. I rarely get sick. And so, you know, just the first step is when you have to be okay or not, not okay. You have to love yourself and appreciate yourself for who you are. And because of that work to, 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 pursue better health for yourself. But back to the question you asked me, Um, to be classified as obese, um, you have to have a BMI greater than 30. And then we also break it down to classes. You know, the class one is BMI 30 to 34.9, and class two is BMI greater than 35, and then class three is BMI greater than 40. And now we're talking about something called super obesity. We haven't coined a better term for it, but it's also having a BMI greater than 50. Um, If you are someone who has overweight or is classified as overweight, um, what is helpful is actually doing a waist circumference because if you deposit more adipose tissue around your midsection, it still places you at a higher risk for diabetes, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, And so, if you have a waist circumference greater than 35 inches for men, for for women, and greater than 40 inches for men, that places you at a higher risk. Something we're also doing for another measurement because, you know, we are in the time where we love numbers and and charts and whatever. You know, we're doing the waist-to-hip ratio. So if you're a male and you have a waist-to-hip ratio greater than 0.9, and if you're a female and it's greater than 0.85, you know, you could be categorized as
0: obese. You know, it's interesting. So BMI is like body mass index, guys. And I have to tell you, every year I have to go and get this biometric screening for my insurance. And I had to do it. And I had to do it yesterday. And I thought, how timely is this? And to get my BMI, I have to hold what looks like a controller up on a video game with mm-hmm. my hands. And it gives basically my fat content of my body. <laughs> I just feel like, oh my gosh, I'm like so conscious about what that's gonna show. And they do the calculations. And so I said to the guy, you know, this is a percentage. And as Dr. Harvey just said, greater than 30, you sort of, people sort of say greater than 30, is that what you're looking at with obesity? And I asked the guy, does that take into account that maybe my weight has more muscle mass versus fat or adipose tissue? And that's the thing about the BMI. It doesn't really take into account specific body types. So I love the fact that you're using this hip ratio, this hip to waist ratio, and then also the waist circumference or basically measuring around the waist so it sounds like there are a lot of ways to help people understand if they if they well what's the word i want to use if they can call themselves overweight or obese and i and i i'm trying to make that in a term because i think as people talk about losing weight to get access to some of the care you have to have that designation by a physician correct
1: that is true. But I think also, um, you know, we talk about losing weight, but I think a lot of us are shifting and starting to talk about losing fat ah. because, you know, the scale could not change if you're losing fat, but also gaining muscle. And I'm not saying, you know, I can see other physicians, pharmacists, the medical community, please don't say that fat weighs more, more than muscle, what have you. But, you know, the 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 amount of space... I think is a better way to say it, that right. one pound of fat versus the amount of space that one pound of muscle, you know, takes up looks very different in our bodies. And so, you know, to advocate for yourself to get some of the medical treatment, which includes sometimes uh, a consultation with the dietician, um, the actual prescription medication and then you know, cases where you have a BMI greater than 30 and you have the comorbid conditions or you're not able to lose weight, the referral to a, um, a bariatric surgeon requires that you get that classification. And yes, to be able to advocate for yourself, you have to know about, you know, also the percent body fat that I may have, you know, the waist circumference or the waist to hip ratio that right, I have. Right,
0: right. No, I you know I think that's because you said you know we're all about numbers, and I agree. When I was in practice, one thing I used to tell folks is, don't pay so much attention to the number. Is you know, are your clothes fitting looser? Do you mm, you're yes. toning up? Do you when you see your body in the mirror, does it look a little different to you? Um, but that brings me back to another point. You know, I started with medications, but I should back up a few steps. One of the areas that, that I struggle with is nutrition. It, mm. not that, you know, I, I love sweets. I, I will tell you, if mm. you stick in my pantry, I'm going to eat it. And we haven't argued Gosh. at my house about buying stuff because I'm like, Oh, please don't bring it in. It's just too tempting. But I also work out a great deal to counter that. And I think I have a lot of people ask me questions about, um, you know, are food and exercise still important or is it, is this just the way I'm going to be? You know, if I, if I can't stop and give up sweets, like, is it an all or nothing kind of scenario? And, and the thoughts have really changed about that, right? It's not just making myself not do something any longer or denying myself something. That's not fair. It's not sustainable.
1: It's definitely not um, sustainable. Um, I want to go back to the, the what you were saying about the sugar. You know, sugar is addictive. And the problem with the, the brain is the brain is about neurotransmitters, um, my homeostasis monitoring hormone levels and so i need everyone to to realize that and and i want you to understand from a scientific standpoint that if you are addicted to drugs cocaine alcohol sugar um the brain can't tell the difference you know what i'm saying all it knows is, is about is whether or not we have this reward that's going on or this thing that makes us feel good and so in in the United States particularly but also worldwide we are so bombarded with cues to eat certain foods. And they know how to get us. It's like the big red signs, the hot donut sign when we're riding <laughs> by. Or, right. you know, we pay attention to things that are big and bright and um, and that are flamboyant colors. That's why you'll notice that a lot of the the food signs or what have you, they're either red or orange or yellow, something that's gonna catch our eye. And so if we're in a, an environment we're already addicted to the substances that are in food because processed food is addictive too and you know a lot of people are starting to to open the conversation that one we're not eating real food we're eating cheese puffs um chips or what have you these are like foods you know when you put them in your mouth your your body is already starting to work on digestion and is raising your blood sugar And so, you know, if you have someone in an environment that they already struggle in, um, that they're, you know, I can't tell anyone who has obesity or overweight, stop eating or, you know, stop being around the foods that, that tempt you. And, you know, history has also shown us that, you know, even the most disciplined person, you know, if you put them in a room with, Basically, their triggers and their cues, nine times out of 10, it's going to be hard for them to, to abstain. So you actually have to give them the tools to even plan to fail. You know, there's going to be a day and time that comes where you're going to see a cupcake and you may have had a stressful day when you see that cupcake <laughs> and you may not have had any kind of reward in the past three weeks. And that for some reason, that cupcake is your reward. Then what? Then what are we going to do? And so now, you know, along with all the advances that, you know, have come through medical science as to the reasons that we have difficulty saying no to certain types of foods and the reasons why we have, we struggle with losing weight, it's not fair to any person to tell them that, you know, you haven't lost weight because you didn't say no to sugar or you didn't say no to fat and, you know... um, A lot of these diets that are out right now, they set us up to fail because Mm -hmm. they ask us to take a complete food group, you know, out of our routine diet (laughs) and our brains, the wiring of our brains are designed for things to come a little bit easier for us. Like when you're driving a car, it's automatic, you know, you know, the first time that you go to someone's house, you have to think about every turn and, you know, watch out. But after a while you can. Not supposed to do this, but you can daydream. You know, you might even look at the navigation or pick up your phone to see if you gotta take. You're not supposed to do that, but you can do so many things while driving versus before you had to pay close attention. It's the same with food. Like right now, if I asked you, "What are you gonna have for breakfast?" I know in the South, it's grits, eggs, bacon. Period. Right. And so, you know, to make our lives or to put our lives on autopilot. <clears throat> You, when you ask certain questions, there should, you know there's initially already an answer there and it's the same way with food. What are you going to have for lunch? Most likely the top 10 things I've been eating for the past 30 years for lunch. And to change that rewiring can happen. It's called neuroplasticity. We're human beings. We can change you know the, the, the signals in our brain, but it's a really difficult process and it's something that we're just starting to learn how to do now.
0: So when you're working with patients, then do you usually refer them or help them with some sort of organized, healthy, I won't say meal planning, because that's not fair, but to your point, like rewiring, like if you're trying to teach me that a brownie a day is good, but nine brownies are bad, <laughs> you know, it, sometimes having um, an organization or a group of people or a support system in place, do you refer patients to those kinds of things and as one of the steps in helping them manage their weight?
1: So I have, I have created my own system. So I do medical weight loss with Dr. K's Family Medicine. And we do know that having a support group, you're more likely to lose more weight. And so um, one of the key points that I try to get my, or the key habits that I try to get my patients to adopt when they join my weight loss program is planning. Because it's the most important thing when it comes to weight loss meal prepping and also journaling your food. Um, there hasn't been extensive research, but there's a lot of research out there that shows that people who actually journal and and are honest when they journal, yeah. um, they they lose more weight than people who um, who don't. And so once a week, um, people who want to join in, they come. You know, we tackle um, a healthcare discussion on um, meal prepping, stress reduction, sleep, exercise, you know, what should and shouldn't we be eating? I I never tell people they can't have something because that's the worst thing you could ever do, right? Like right now, don't think about chocolate. That's all you're going to think about for the rest of the day. Exactly. And and we try to encourage one another. Um, What makes me a little bit sad, I must say, is that You know, it's so many people who have access to our meetings, but I can say maybe 5% of the people actually come because I think people have gotten to the point that they don't think that simple lifestyle changes are meaningful. They may not lead to meaningful weight loss, but they lead to meaningful changes in your body that we should also, you know, appreciate
0: besides losing weight. I agree. I think that's that's probably one of the things that I heard the most when I was talking with patients is just, you know, can you help me lose weight? Give me a drug. And I go before we get there, I need you to to rethink how you're eating, because when we take the drug away, you know, it, that kind of thing. So we talked a little bit about food and it sounds like I think what the audience should hear from that is, you know, you need a support network. You need somebody to sort of help you walk through it. And I think also you need to realize that you're going to make some tough choices that you have to look at yourself and say, yeah. I ate that bag of chips when I shouldn't have. (laughs) Um, And how are you going to moderate? The other thing was activity. This is the thing that I, you know, you talk to some folks that are overweight and it's just hard for them sometimes to really do extended times of activity. And I don't think a lot of people even understand what that means. People are like, oh, I can't go running. I'm not going to ride a bike. I mean, my knees hurt, you know, those kinds of things. How do you help folks stay active or create some sort of activity plan with your patients?
1: So typically, I tell everyone to walk because it's something that you don't need a cardiac clearance um, to do. And it's something you already did when you came in my office, you walked. However, if a person is wheelchair bound, they um, also have something called wheelchair exercises on um, YouTube. Cool. Yes. Okay. Or for my elderly patients, you know, who don't have access to a pool. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I typically will tell them um, about the wheelchair exercise. Um And then, other than that, if they can't walk, if they can't do the wheelchair exercise, I just remind them, and I have not found anyone yet you know, who was bed bound, who could not do um, my my um, weight loss program. But if they can't do that, I just tell them the mo- most important factor is your diet. You know, if you can't, for whatever reason, exercise, then the diet is the way to go. Now, my people who really want to exercise, they don't have arthritis, they don't have any issues with their joints. You know, I recommend that they try to... Um, progressively do something called HIIT training high intensity interval training yeah. because it has been shown you know one to help you burn a fat a little bit quicker and two it um, increases your exercise tolerance and so that what that's kind of my favorite exercise but lastly um i tell people to do whatever makes them feel good you know zumba if that makes you feel good you know they have video games now where, you know the video game is the exercises that's right. something you can commit to do that just move your body you know just sitting down um i think it's like every hour that you um are seated. It increases your risk of heart disease by so many percentage. I'm sorry. I'm not that great with numbers, but no, I know but it increases your risk of heart disease. Right. And so that's why I, where I love the Fitbits the, um, what is it? The pedometers that people are wearing on their wrists. And I just try to encourage them to get those 10,000 steps in. You know, we prefer that we have exercise and um, increased activity because you know, a lot of people are like, Dr. K, I, I'm a construction worker. I'm physically active enough. And I let them know that I prefer that you be physically active, but I also want the exercise because exercise is medicine. It's that extra dose of stress that actually um. Imp- Improves your cardiac function, helps dilate those arterioles so that you get blood, good blood flow. And also, that um, short amount of stress in the long term decreases inflammation in the body. And we now know that inflammation is the cornerstone of disease. And so, if you're active every day and your heart rate is 65 or 70, or you have that tolerance, I need you to do a little bit more within that one hour period because that that extra that you do in that one hour is actually your medicine.
0: It's so funny you say that. I used to tell folks, I have a lot of folks that used to be uh, wait staff servers and they would say, I'm on my feet all day long and I'm right. Re- I'm activity. And I go, <laughs> yeah. I said, here's a sad thing. I need you to go one above that versus the person that's yes. all day. And I go, I don't mean to punish you, but we need to go just like a little like one level above. So I hear, I hear food, I hear exercise, but I will tell you, and I think you probably know more than anybody, the shift to the discussion about drugs It's been
1: a long time coming and we need to have it.
0: It has been. And, you know, there have been some new drugs. But before we get there, I was doing some reading and actually your talk in November prompted me to like go out and do some reading and like sort of see things. And from, you know, I was trying to figure out how are these drugs different than what we used in the past? Like what, what makes these drugs so good at what they do? And what I was reading, it surprised the heck out of me. I grew up with the mentality of what you just talked about if I eat better and work out, I should lose weight. You know, I wasn't necessarily born with a thin frame, but I wasn't born with a large frame either. So I can, you know, I'm in that process. But then I have other friends like my brother. My brother could eat an entire pig on his own and still be as slender as anything out there. I'm reading now that there's a possibility that folks who gain weight easily or can't lose weight, it's not all about the food they take or the exercise level that there may be some, I don't know how to say it, some parts missing here or there, and we're trying to figure out how to make that work in the body with those drugs. Is that a a fair way to describe it?
1: That's a fair way to describe it, Um, especially the, what is it, Contrave, the GLP-1s, and even Fentermine to an extent. um, That's how it works. It basically... Well fentramine mostly helps work by making you feel fuller and it also activates the hypo the part of the hypothalamus that tells you not to eat. But the GLP-1s they they are kind of tapping into our hormones. So um GLP-1 is a hormone produced by the small intestines and it basically slows the gastric emptying in the stomach. So it makes food stay there, stay in the stomach longer, and it makes you feel fuller longer. But it also activates a part of the brain that tells you that you don't need to eat as much. And then it also activate activates a part of your brain that increases your metabolism. And so, you know, once upon a time, like you said, we believe that obesity was just simply certain people ate more and worked out less. Now we know that obesity may actually be generated by hormones, and the the um, and even further, we also know that the what is it the flora in your gut. Um, may also drive whether or not you have a little bit more adipose tissue or a little less adipose tissue than other people. And so I want to also circle back and say that our environment has shifted, you know, the hormonal uh, signals in our body, as well as the food has shifted the hormonal yeah. signal. The, the, you know, the high fructose corn syrup, um, because it bypasses insulin, which is really important when it comes to weight loss and weight gain, Uh, it causes us to eat more. And because of some of the the foods that we eat that are full of um, carbohydrates or um, full of different preservatives, um, but more so the sugar and the carbohydrates, it causes something called insulin spikes. And so the problem with the insulin spike, we get this big flux of insulin, which tells our body to build and to, to store fat and supposedly, the insulin is supposed to go to our brain and say, "Okay, we we got a, a sugar spike here. Right. You can stop eating now." But because a lot of us have become insulin resistant because we keep getting that high spike of um, of glucose, and you know, we keep sending up that message that um, you need to build, you need to build, you need to build. Because of that, we eventually become insulin resistant. So. The liver stops listening to that that increase in insulin, and it continues to make glucagon, which continues to pour out sugar, which continues to create inflammation throughout our body. You know, it's longer past, but this is the result. Increase in sugar, increase in stickiness of our, um, our blood vessels, increase in um. um Um, with the inflammation, more difficulty with weight loss. And our brain, the insulin is supposed to say stop eating, but because also the brain is insulin resistant, it doesn't get the message, now is the time to cut down. Somehow or another, because of this GLP-1, because of the efficiency with how the pancreas puts out insulin, our bodies are getting the signal that this is enough food you don't need to eat anymore. And our brain is also getting that signal, most importantly.
0: So, you know, those people listening in, you just got an entire metabolic lecture on (laughs) thinking about the way sugar runs through the body. But you said something really important there. GLP-1, and I want to really define this real quick. This is the ozempic, semaglutide, Wagovi, Victoza, all those drugs that you're hearing people talk about getting a hold of, those are GLP-1s.
1: Yes, they are... I don't I I I don't want to tout it as the miracle drug because that's what everyone is call, calling it and I'm sorry I have a number of patients um that are on um Ozempic. I used to place a lot of patients on Victoza before the craze with Ozempic because you know it's older it is. and you know when I was placing I put my patients on Victoza versus Saxenda because no one could afford Saxenda. Yeah.
0: So people out there in the community you may know who <laughs> Victoza and Saxenda are actually the same drug. Ozempic and Wagovi are actually the same drug, but the dosing is a little different. And so, but now Victoza and Ozempic are indicated for diabetes, right? Yes. People who have a diagnosis, not just folks that are a little overweight with diabetes, but are diabetes only. And then they may have a little weight because they have diabetes. Is that?
1: So yeah. Victoza is approved for um, diabetes. But Saxenda actually have FDA approval for weight loss. Got but it. like you said, it was kind of a trick of the company. I'm calling you out. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's the same exact drug. They just it got to, to market it differently and make some extra coins off of it. I'm calling you out. big yep. And
0: Ozempic <laughs> did the exact same thing with their drug, too. The semiglutide that everybody's trying to get their hands on. Yes. You know, it's, you bring up this class of drugs, and I was reading once again, the American Gastroenterology, which is basically the stomach experts, came out with some research and said, you know what, these are the four drugs we like, or four classes we like, and the GLP-1s were in that group, but you mm-hmm. just said this, Ozempic outperformed Victoza. It had more impact on weight loss. Is that, that's what they said, Correct.
1: That's, that's exactly correct. You know, I think a big problem with um, the Victosa is you have to take it every day. And, you know, it seems that people are having a few more of the side effects. The number one, um, and more people are likely to drop out of a study. Well, from the studies I read, more people are more likely to discontinue the Victoza because of side effects. effects. And the number one is nausea and vomiting. And so um, even when you titrate them up slowly, you know, a lot of times they'll still come up with that. But. One, we go, I don't know what it is about the long-term um, or the, the longer half-life of the Wegovi or semaglutide versus the r- Liraglutide. I know from my experience, the decrease in side, side effect, the ease of use, um, it, it makes patients more adherent and therefore they see the benefit. And once they start seeing the drop in weight, they don't want to stop.
0: Yeah, and you know, I mean,
1: even with me telling patients, you might get cancer. You know, we don't know yet. We have only seen it in ants, animals, right? But there's a small risk that there is cancer linked to this drug. And I must also say that that just shows you, you know, if people are willing to to inherit the side effects of a medication and one of the potential risks. Is cancer from taking a drug? It shows you how committed people are, or how determined, or how much they desire to lose this weight. So it can't be simply we're not losing weight because we're not following a certain diet right. plan.
0: Right. You know it's interesting because the GLP ones give the body back a protein that's missing from the stomach, and a lot of folks <clears throat> and people always ask why why does it cause nausea and vomiting? Well, my, people may not know this, but that protein actually comes from a different animal not humans it comes from the Mm -hmm. gila monster so our body Mm -hmm. for the first couple weeks is saying to itself what the heck you're giving me something weird here and it makes the stomach react but your point about moving the dose up slowly for these drugs they tend to have pretty good impact and ozempic gosh what was it at 18 percent weight loss or something like that like people lost 18 (laughs) percent
1: Yep. Um, so it depends on which study you read, but it's between 16 to 18% weight loss that we're seeing with those Zempic. And, you know, this almost rivals bariatric surgery because we see about 25 to 30% weight loss with bariatric surgery. So yeah. And you know, the older drugs like, um, you know, everyone's favorite drug back in the day was Adipex, yeah. you know, or Phentermine. It's mm-hmm. 5% with that one, and then the Phentermine to Pyramid combination, it's only 8 to eight to 10% weight loss with that one. So, if you get a person to losing almost 20% of their body weight versus, you know, never seeing that before with diet and exercise. So, diet and exercise, typically you get 3% right.
0: Um, right. loss of body weight. And, you know, so if you did your diet and exercise, lost your three to five percent and then, you know, got to the point where you're on Ozempic or the, you have a potential of like 20 to 25 percent of your of your weight being reduced.
1: And, and, I'm, and, you know, you tell anyone who has struggled with their weight that they're going to hop on. That's yeah. a
0: huge deal. Interesting you bring that up, though, because um, talking about the older drugs. The other thing about those, they were stimulants, like right? they, they sort of yeah. make metabolism increase. Yep. And and unfortunately, you have to come off them because you can't stay on them for long periods of time in many states. So this drug, though, is the when you talk about the GLP ones, they're not controlled substances. The older drugs, like the fentamine, was a controlled substance or is a controlled substance. So the these the GLP ones have the potential for you to stay on them longer period of time correct do we know when we can stop them now or can we continue them i know diabetes if you have diabetes you can continue on but let's say we're using it just for weight loss how long can you stay on them as long as you need
1: to but you know you you've seen I think I think most people have seen all of the commercials that we're getting about Wegovy Ozempic. yeah, they're actually asking you stay on it lifelong. I mean they're not coming out and saying the word lifelong. Right. you know, at the end, they say, if you stop this medicine, you will regain all your weight. And so you know, I think it is our duty, you know, while people are are on this medication. I tell my patients, this is a tool that's all I want it to be for you, a tool so that you can adopt these specific habits and these specific routines. And yes, if you decide, or when you decide to come off this medicine, because your insurance stopped paying for it, if they pay for it, or you just don't, you know, you don't want the side effects, or you just don't want to take a drug for the rest of your life, you're going to gain some of the weight back, but What I want to not happen for you is for you to gain all of your weight back. Right.
0: No, I think that's a really great point. I read an article the other day again. I've been, ever since November, you've put me on this pathway to read about this phenomenon of of these drugs because I'm amazed that here's a drug that was created for diabetes to manage our sugars, to figure out how to keep them controlled, has morphed into this drug, to your point earlier, that reduces inflammation in our body, turns our brain off, so to speak, and makes our stomach tell us you're full put the sandwich down and it's like, I'm just amazed by this, this technology, this discovery. But I read that for people that have been on this for a period of time, some people actually were able to stop and maintain their weight loss and then other people weren't. So again, it's person by person, discussion by discussion. So that brings me, you talked about the old drugs. I have to admit, I I want to talk about this drug too, because in my reading, I came up with this, the new drug that just got approved for diabetes care, but people are going bonkers yeah. For this drug for weight loss called was it called Mongiorno? Did I do that correctly?
1: Monjaro. <laughs> now, like, Everyone is talking about it. Now I actually um uh, was so excited about it when I first heard about it. And the pharmacy reps have already visited my office. Um I actually bought stock, but because I talk about obesity and I talk about drugs, someone said, You're gonna have to do a disclosure in your talk so I sold my stock for Manjaro but I love I know it's gonna it's gonna take Eli Lilly to the next
0: level that's the maker so what what makes Manjaro different than Ozempic or Victoza because they're kind of in the same area but they're not identical they're not the same class
1: yeah so um back to those hormones we were talking about but it has an additional hormone. It's called a GIP agonist, um, glucose-dependent um, insulinotropic peptide, in it. And you know what's weird? <laughs> That's easy for you to say, <laughs> what's weird? GIP alone is supposed to be an obesogenic agent, something that makes you gain weight. Oh, however, when it is part, it's paired with GLP one. Together, they have this synergistic effect. You know that makes um that makes GLP work, one work even better so you know i told you it makes food stay in your stone, stomach long, longer it delays gastric emptying so you're fuller longer it tells your brain hey we don't need to eat it's, it's enough right here for what we need and then also it you know it it helps when the pancreas secretes insulin instead of getting that big spike that after you eat and after that insulin go down you want to eat everything you're ravenous it you know it it slowly and steadily raises your insulin instead of getting that big spike that we don't
0: want to get from the certain foods that we eat. So is it fair to say that these drugs are kind of retraining our body to work the best they can?
1: It's training our body to work in the way that it was designed to work.
0: I see, I see. Yeah. So I get, this goes back to what you talked about earlier. That means that some folks that just can't seem to lose the weight don't have enough GIP or GLP, where other people who can eat anything they want, not least, is it fair to say they just, we're replacing sort of what their body doesn't have for them right now? Or is that, is, is it as simple as that?
1: No, it it's not that simple because, you know, the the problem with um, obesity and why some people are thinner than others is so complex that it's not simply reduced to one hormone. Got it. Um, the best example of this is um, people were once saying that if we are leptin resistant, why can't we just make a leptin like medicine to cause us to lose weight? So they tried to come up with a substance that's like that. It didn't work. And then, you know, another problem with obesity is um, the amount of ghrelin that some people um, secrete. Some people secrete a little bit more than others. People call it, um, when they have bariatric surgery, ghrelinectomy, ghrelinectomy because it's the uh, we're cutting off the part of the hormone that's the, the part of the stomach that secretes the hormone that t- makes us hungry. And so um, there's something called NEAT. Um, God, and I'm so sorry, I cannot remember, but NEAT, um, look up NEAT in dietetics, but it basically says that our metabolisms are different. none. I forget it but our metabolisms are different for whatever reason so it's you know some people just have a um and i and i can't even say that the, the need explains why some people burn more fat than others but people who have obesity also have a higher metabolism it's just not a balance in you know in the amount of um i guess the the types of food to cap off the the amount that they burn and so they store a little bit more fat so you know i'm sorry but i cannot reduce okay. it to just glp1
0: one or one thing it's a lot of things but what i'm hearing you say though is it's no longer just about i didn't exercise enough or i ate too much there's a lot going on in our bodies that yes. we're dis- we're discovering these drugs go in there and they make it better. I don't know how to say that, but they. That is true. Work up. They they take the part that's not working well and they try to make it really work. The, yeah. You said something earlier that I I want to circle back to now. These drugs, the Monjarno and the Victoza, Zempic, even when you look at um, Contrave, the old the drug that has bupropion and um, shucks now Trexone in it, these are expensive. Yeah. I mean, we're not talking. You know, I, as I sit here and on this, as I sit here and we're doing this, I'm like, all these people are rushing out to get this, and everybody wants it. But at the same point in time, there's a bit of sticker shock. If I'm not mistaken, if you're paying out of pocket, a month's supply could run you 900 to over a thousand dollars. Of yeah, is that that's okay? So how, how do you help your patients get these products if they qualify and they're candidates and all that great stuff? I mean I don't think this should be just random everybody just grabs it because you have because you're, you're overweight. I mean I think your primary care physician needs to guide it. But I also see the benefit in this and I don't want people not to have it because they, they can't afford it. That just seems counterintuitive to me because being yeah. I was just because being obese causes a lot of health problems. It seems like if we give a medication that helps people lose weight, we actually keep people away from diabetes, heart attacks, strokes. Yes. yes to invest in the drug to me right i mean so how do we help people get to these drugs that that need them to stay healthy
1: i want to repeat that drugs are a tool you guys i want you still to employ lifestyle changes but when it's time and you see that this is an option for you um i rely heavily on samples and I don't mind begging. I don't mind asking the pharmacy reps for a little bit extra, but also, you know, most, if not all of these big pharma pharmaceutical companies have a patient assistance program. Okay, And so you have to look heavily with the, that small writing on their website. And typically there's a form that you can fill out, you know, you have to you know, disclose how much money you're making, why you need this medication. And a lot of times they will oblige you for a few months with the prescription. So we can go that route. Two, you know, if you have metabolic syndrome, pre-diabetes, which most of us already do have pre-diabetes and we just don't know it. Um, there's a homo score that um your your doctor can put into a calculation, but it's a calculator, but it's based off your insulin level excuse me, in your glucose level. And it can tell, um, it can basically tell the risk um, that you have of, you know, contracting diabetes or, you know, how insulin resistant you are for, you know, the correct term. And, you know, once we secure those diagnoses, a lot of my patients have been able to get ozempic because they are insulin resistant or pre-diabetic. Of course, we may have to do something called a prior authorization, and that's just another way of us begging, right. us telling the insurance company, this could be life-saving. If you you put this patient on this medication, you know, it may reverse her cholesterol or his cholesterol, his blood pressure, his diabetes. And so that's how I've been able to secure it. But we need, we need the help of the community. The, the power is within the people. You know, if they can talk to their uh, representatives, you know, have, get a, get weight treatment approved by insurance companies and get you know insurance companies, Medicare, Medicaid to also place the drugs that you know help with weight loss on their formulary. You know that's the only way that we're gonna secure equity, you know amongst people who have obesity and overweight you know, to everyone else who may not, you know, need those drugs because they don't have the cold morbid, morbid, morbidities or they don't struggle with the disease.
0: Got it. You know, it's interesting you mentioned patient assistant programs, vouchers. Um, the other thing I, I, you know, talk about is sometimes there are actually coupons out there that you can use if yes. you're cash pay. Um, and then there are a couple of apps for the audience that you can look things up to get an idea of price. I, th- I think one of the areas that I, I talk about a lot, and you said this earlier about prior authorizations, don't expect to walk in, be told that, hey, this is where you are and go, I'd like Ozempic and expect yes. that in that day, you're going to be able to get it because it'll mm-hmm. take it'll take a little <laughs> bit of time to get that established. We've covered a lot. We've We've talked about background and eating healthy and how we should stay active and here's some new drugs and what they're doing to our bodies and making us actually be more efficient in the way we handle nutrients if you had to sum up everything in three pearls for our listening audience what three things would you want them to take away from our conversation today three short pearls to make them go okay i know what i need to do now i know i know how to sort of tackle my weight issue the
1: first thing is one the all of the power you know lies within you um, as being an advocate for your own health care you know you know what your your weight loss journey or your health journey has been and you know i still want you to continue to do the good work that you're already doing meal prepping eating the best diet that you can with the life that you have and you know challenging yourself and taking it a step further but also um educating yourself on all of the different um weight loss medications that are on the market, finding out what resources that are available to you, finding out if you you know if you want to have bariatric surgery what are the risks do you qualify and also educating other people that obesity is a disease and yes you know our environments have led us to become obese but there's a place for for medical science to to treat this pandemic that we're currently in the pandemic of obesity
0: yeah i think that's a great point i failed to mention when i first came on but i i want to repeat i think Over 40% of Americans are classified as being obese.
1: That is true. And I want to say, I don't want anyone to ever think that I can reduce obesity down to just, um, you know, diet, whether or not you're exercising, this one particular hormone or genes or anything. It's it's so many things that are working against us. in this current environment. And at the rate that people are becoming obese or having obesity, you know, we have to become innovative. And what's the word? I guess innovative is the best word in how we approach this disease. You know, we have tried, I think about all the different diet plans that have come and gone over the years. If that was the the only solution and the solution, then we wouldn't continue to see this uptick in the rate of obesity now.
0: Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think, um, and I think for those listening from the community you're thinking about this and what do I do, the first step, talk to your primary care provider, figure out what plan works for you and then start the process. But I I think Dr. Harvey nailed it on the head. No matter what we tell you is right or wrong, when you leave the office, your journey kind of begins with you um, and, and your decision. Dr. Harvey, thank you so much. Um well, as thank always, you. I love having this conversation with you because you make me think and uh, you put things in perspective and you remind me of the fact that managing weight is not just simply let's not eat as much and work out more. There's so many other factors. Guys, listening in, I hope you enjoyed this talk. I hope you walked away with some knowledge. Uh, tune in next month. We're going to be talking about the HPV vaccine, as well as how that deals with prevention of cancer. Until then, my name is Dr. Tim Brown. You've been listening to Farmcast for the Community, sponsored by the University of Georgia's College of Pharmacy. As always, for another month, stay healthy. I'll see you then.